I think thereafter, this opportunity would catapult Martin Luther King into the forefront and he would get audience now with political leaders. Whenever you walk into the role of politics, they're looking out for themselves. Needless to say, I think King, over the course of time, got caught up in that and it would lead to what I believe to be a, a detrimental situation, a problematic situation as it relates to the advance of civil rights. Welcome to Christ Overall, a podcast dedicated to helping the church see Christ as Lord and everything else under his feet. My name is David Schrock, and today, Steve Wellam and I are sitting down with Virgil Walker to talk about the good and the bad, the right and the wrong, the past, the present, and the future of the civil rights movement. This month, Christ Overall is doing a deep dive into the historical events related to the civil rights movement. And through a series of essays, we're looking at the events, ideas, and figures of the civil rights movement and how they have impacted the church. Even more, we hope to give a Christian analysis of the ways that the church has responded to the call for civil rights. Also this month, we are offering a free book entitled Dividing the Faithful, How a Little Book on Race Fractured a Movement Founded on Grace. This is our first publication and one that addresses the way in which the book, Divided by Faith, misled a generation of the young, restless, and reformed. As this book was passed around for the last decade or so among many Reformed evangelicals, it has taken root in the hearts of many, and it has found a place in the footnotes of countless Christian books written to address racism. And yet, instead of giving good biblical instruction, Divided by Faith sows the seeds of critical race theory, and it offers a view of the world that identifies racism as a problem even where there are no active racists. In response, Dividing the Faithful, which I started writing in 2020, gives a chapter-by-chapter analysis of Divided by Faith, and it seeks to show why this book played a significant role in fracturing so many gospel-centered friendships. In the opening pages of the book, you can find Trent Hunter's foreword, which sets the context of this book among the young, restless, and reformed generation. And you can find on our website an endorsement from Ardell Candidate, who encountered the book in the early 2000s. Indeed, wherever you come down on the issues of race and justice, this new book seeks to engage an important book on the subject, and it is one that I hope that you will read. To that end, we are offering a free digital version of this book for the month of July. By signing up for our weekly email or monthly newsletter, you will get access to a free PDF. You can find the details on our website, ChristOverall.com. At the same time, this book will be published this fall by G3 Ministries. And in that print version, Virgil Walker, our guest on the podcast today, will be writing the foreword. So you probably will want a digital copy and a print version too. Enough self-advertising for now. For today, we will discuss the subjects related to race, justice, civil rights, and the church. Indeed, for many, the issues of race, justice, and the church's role with each are matters of controversy. And Virgil is certainly not a novice when it comes to addressing controversy with biblical truth. Instead, he is a battle-tested brother who loves to bring scripture to bear on cultural challenges. And today, that is our plan. For the next hour, Steve, Virgil, and I will consider the goodness of the civil rights movement, but also some of the negative consequences as well. If you have only thought of the civil rights movement in positive terms, you want to tune in and think carefully about what scripture tells us and what history shows us as we think about the ongoing legacy of the civil rights movement. And so that's where we're going. And so Virgil... Welcome to the Christ Overall Podcast. Hey, man, it's an honor to be with you, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Absolutely. Great to have you. And Steve, welcome back for another conversation today. We're talking with Virgil. Great to be with you guys again. Yeah, We're going to pick up a conversation about Virgil Walker's long-form piece, Where is the Good News? An Honest Look at the Civil Rights Movement and the Black Community. But before we kind of dig into that, Virgil, I'd love to just know a little bit of your background. You're growing up. We're talking about civil rights in this podcast today. So just tell us a little of your background and maybe how you were introduced to the civil rights movement, how you grew up thinking about that, and then how it's kind of led to where you are today. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. I am the son of Clarence and Mary Walker. Father had all of a sixth grade education, working the farm and left school in an effort to take care of a very large family. Mother had a little bit more education, was an LPN, a licensed practicing nurse, and uh, did her thing. It was uh, important in our home, though my dad really had a difficult time from a standpoint of, of literacy, just not taught how to read. And so it struggled with that. I, I call it functional illiteracy, right? He just uh, he read okay, 
put pieces together, memorize things. And so I share that just from a standpoint of saying, I didn't grow up with a silver spoon in my mouth. I know oftentimes when people hear someone who's critical of issues related to civil rights or, or the like, their first immediate thought process is, well, you, you had it all handed to you. Uh, so, so I start with that as by way of background, just to say, you know, I grew up, you know, in, in, a, in a challenging environment, but did know mother and father, and uh, they were serious about their faith. They were serious about education. They were serious about us making something of ourselves. From a standpoint of civil rights and the like, like many other people, I learned about it, you know, in school and public school systems, whether it was you know, the height of, uh, of the time when the idea about having Martin Luther King as a, a day as a national holiday was coming around. Uh, you would hear a lot of, you know, uh, talk about, about King, about his history and background. In addition to that, you know, th- during, the, during what was known as Black History Month, right, during February, schools felt some obligation in some way, shape or form to educate students about, about civil rights or about, you know, the racial history and, the, you know, the slave you know, issues uh, related to, uh, you know, Black community and, and the like from a historic standpoint. So that's kind of the framework. It was, I don't think it was any abnormal idea about these issues or this subject matter that even in my growing up and upbringing, that that was very different or divergent from anything that anybody else heard and taught uh, public school systems, maybe parents, maybe what you heard on a, you know, on a a news broadcast or something of the like. And so it wasn't, it wouldn't be until I I became kind of an adult, began to really examine my, my own personal faith. And then looking at all of culture through the lens of a biblical worldview that I, that I begin to revisit, you know, some of the key cornerstone ideas that surrounded things that I, that, that I was taught, whether it was from a, from a spiritual or biblical standpoint, uh, I wanted to think through, you know, wh- why do I believe, you know, the things I believe I came out of a more of a Pentecostal background uh, growing up uh, from a denominational uh, faith-based standpoint. So I wanted to examine those issues. I wanted to examine why I held to the, the, the decisions that I made regarding, you know, my spiritual journey and walk uh, into more reformed theology. I did the same thing as it related to social issues. I wanted to think through politically speaking, why, why did I always grow up, or most blacks that I knew, uh, grow up as Democrats? Why were we always voting in that way? And, and uh, what are the things that we believe as it relates to that? So the more and more I did more, more research, I would say it wouldn't be until maybe late college years that I began reforming some of my ideas around these issues. And, and it would be, I, I think, at the, fir- at the point at which I, I first had the opportunity to vote. So Bush one was my first approach to voting and the like, and, and have voted Republican ever since. All of that informed by a biblical worldview. I would look at scripture and understand what I believed, why I believed it. And I tried to do my best to, to look at uh, which politician aligned their ideas with that worldview and voted in that direction. And so that's kind of a long, long story about the background and history that I come from as well, a voter. Yeah, that's really helpful and just encouraging just to hear the Lord putting you in a family that prioritized, you know, his work and being in the church and growing up in faith. I'd love to just ask a couple of questions about that. One, when you say you grew up on a farm, your dad was working on a farm, what state? My dad grew up on a farm. He never put, I, I didn't live on a farm, but he, oh, okay, he, grew, yeah, okay. he, grew, he grew up, he grew up in a farming community in, in, in the state of Arkansas. And so okay. uh, not very far from Hope, Arkansas, where, where Bill Clinton was from. And so, so those, those were his stomping grounds growing up. He would meet my mom in Utica, New York, uh, looking for work. That was the place he would, he would meet her there. They would have me and, uh, and the rest is history. So no, I, I grew up in upstate New York as a young child. And then about middle school, a little bit after middle school, we moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma. We had more family that was there. Jobs were better during that time. This was in the mid eighties. And uh, so we moved there and uh, graduated high school there in Tulsa, Oklahoma uh, at Hale High School there, Nathan Hale High School in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and then went to college. And interestingly enough, went back to Arkansas to go to college for a stint. So kind of kind of full circle there as well. All right. Well, Steve, you're not far from Utica, New York, if you're upstate New York, right, on the other side there in, in Canada. Uh, brother, how, how did you, you came down to the United States, you've been here since college. I mean, just what has your experience been with civil rights? Was that taught in public schools there in Canada? Or what are some things that you experienced as you came to the United States? Yeah, it's interesting, um, you know, because I grew up in Canada. I was, I've I came to the United States after high school so to go to college. So I was uh, under a student visa and then eventually got married to my wife, Karen, who's an American 
from Upper State, New York. But um, yeah, it's it's interesting. My first experience in coming to the United States uh, from Canada was to notice, uh, and this was 1982, uh, was to notice just the, the racial tensions. And that really hit me when I went to Chicago. So when I went to uh, went to Roberts Wesleyan College in Upper State New York uh, for an undergrad, and then I went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School for my seminary. So I was in the Chicagoland area, and uh, it, it it struck me quite different than my experience in Canada. We we didn't have the same kind of racial tensions. Now ob- obviously there's there's tensions there, but it wasn't emphasized nearly as much. And uh, over the last years, I mean, you know, decades or so, it's really turned into not so much a, a black-white issue, but uh, Native Americans and this type of thing. So Canada with Indian Native Americans and that kind of issue. So the civil rights came to to discuss that. But when I came to the U.S., I was because of its history. So in Canada, we would have been taught American history. And I think it was a bit distorted, uh, to be to be frank. Um, you know, it always was taught from the perspective of sort of the British Empire and Canada and, and this type of thing. But uh, you know, a lot of mention of of the Civil War, of, of of slavery, and then of course of the civil rights movement. But uh, what struck me as a Canadian coming into the U.S. was how much uh, the American history, you know, had a, it was still affecting decisions being made, and particularly how. In Chicago, especially Jesse Jackson, his Operation Push and so on, was really grabbing a hold of, you know, a real wound in the United States and and tied to slavery and, and making it a political issue, so that it was really pushed to push in a political agenda. And I still think that's what we are seeing today so much, uh, and that we have to be careful as the church that we don't jump on a, on a bandwagon and, and not think as Christians uh, in, in the midst of this. But that's what struck me as, as a Canadian. I've been here for years, and obviously uh, I'm, I now have dual citizenship and, and, and so on, but it's still, still the history of the, of the country and, uh, and how it gets politically hijacked is what still strikes me and how Christians are so easily uh, can go along with the rhetoric of people to then use it to their political advantage where they're not really concerned with people or rights or the concern of uh, families and the flourishing of people and so on, but more concerned with political power. And uh, so that, that's just sort of just been an observation that I've had as, as a Canadian coming down. I think it's important that we kind of just start with just even hearing some of that background for you, Steve, and for you, Virgil, as well. And just thinking about how that conversation matters so much in our local churches as we're getting to know one another, because I think these are issues that are framed so much by our experience, right? And you talked about just how when you got to college, the Word of God and a biblical worldview began to shape that, and that's where we're going to go, and that's where we need to go. But it's good to remember that each of us are coming from those different experiences to the Word of God at that point. I mean, I think about growing up in Richmond, Virginia, so you know the capital the Confederacy there. I mean, the monuments were there when I was growing up until they were, you know, actually just a year or two ago. And so it was very much, you know, some kind of old Virginia that was still there. And yet growing up, uh, my parents were from the north. And so they just kind of had different sensibilities there as well. My dad was involved with, he was a community ed director in Flint, Michigan and other places like that along the way. And so there's a kind of equality that was certainly sensed there. And growing up playing basketball, I mean, playing AAU basketball, I mean, there were moments in time where I was the minority on the court, certainly uh, playing basketball there. Many of my friends who are African-American and uh, the posters on, on my wall growing up as a kid were all black athletes, right? Michael Jordan, Isaiah Thomas. I know they didn't like each other, but I did, uh, right? They're on the wall there growing up. And, and so there was a sense of, you know, great lore for Martin Luther King and just a a goodness of the civil rights movement. That's how it's presented at public schools. And then I think over the last few years as well, even some of the work that you, Virgil and Daryl have done to say, oh, there's some other things to consider here with the civil rights movement. So I want to get to that because that's what your your long form is talking about. But maybe just even thinking about as you're in college and certainly beginning to vote and coming into the world, what were some of the things in scripture that were beginning to form the way that you were thinking about things perhaps differently uh, than what you heard growing up? I think I think it, it really stemmed from two things, and again, I I would I would argue that a, a really fully orbed uh, expression of biblical worldview would actually happen for me even later in life. I think what was helpful for me was having having a mom and dad at home who who kind of taught 
very traditional kind of Christian, uh, Judeo-Christian, you know, kind of kind of upbringing. Uh, you know, we 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 don't want to have sex before marriage, and here's why. And uh, you know, having having curfews, and you know, we're not drinking, we're not smoking, we, we're gonna you know, we're gonna operate. And, and again, some may find that to be fundamentalist or what have you, but but they came from just a position of. Wanting to honor God in your body, wanting to honor God in the, the way that we lived our lives, having a very traditional framework. So even in that, it wasn't it wasn't so much that you know someone said, okay, here's a book, chapter, and verse about uh, about the doctrine of man, you know, or here's a here's a book, chapter, and verse about you know a, about a theology around related to politics. It really was more just kind of a basic Judeo Christian uh, worldview expressed through uh, mother and father in the home trying to do the best for their son. And so I never had a, a I was. I never, um, as you were talking, I was thinking through, I, I never had a, a, a framework that, uh, of inferiority, right? I never, I never walked around with the idea in my head that I was less than somebody else. You know, I had a dad who, who, like I said, had a sixth grade education and could barely read, but never let that stop him from, from, you know, taking care of us as a family or working three jobs to make ends meet. And so I, I never, I was never given or filled with the idea that I was a victim or that I was oppressed or that, or that, or that the, the white man was going to be able to keep me down. My dad always taught me and told me, uh, that, that if I, if I, you know, you, you may, he always said, you may not be the smartest in the room, but, but you need to be the person who, uh, who outworks everybody else in the room. And so if you're able to do that and put hard work behind whatever you're committed to, you'll succeed. So it is that framework that as I go into a, into a college setting, where I'm encountering all kinds of things in, in Arkansas, right? Did I encounter racism? Absolutely. I think it, rather than it making me feel, or, or me feeling dejected or oppressed by it, I was angry about it. Absolutely. But I, w- I really looked at the person who expressed those kinds of emotion or that kind of a, a, a an outrage at, as someone to be pitied. Uh, so I, I viewed it from that standpoint. How, how sad that they live a life that they're, you know, uh, nervous about me because I'm different, that they're scared because I'm different. Uh, and it never, it never reshaped who I thought I was. So from that standpoint, biblical worldview comes in and says that, you know, I'm created in God's image and likeness. And, and as a result of that, I have distinct value, dignity, and worth. And so uh, apart from knowing that in that framework, I, I just, that was something kind of innate, you know, it was kind of the natural revelation of, of the course of my life because of, because uh, of, you know, mom and a dad who held to those views. Yeah, I mean, what what a testimony just to the Word of God, the light that it brought into your home and into your life as well. Uh, and I just think how how biblical that is, right? I mean, Steve, as I'm just listening to Virgil, there just you know the, the the agency and responsibility that every individual will have before God just seems to be an important part of that. And maybe for either one of you to kind of talk through, I mean, that's one of the things. Even this week, as we have seen the the change and the court decision with regards to affirmative action, right? It's really valorized and kind of validated the importance of responsibility. I don't know if you guys want to take that and think about that, of just why that is so important and how that has been lost, perhaps. Well, it struck me in, in just you know seeing the court decision, the 6-3 decision, and particularly uh, paying attention to Clarence Thomas's comment on, on, on the decision of, look, uh, we cannot divide people up in terms of uh, their race and then treat them differently, right? Our, our whole nation, which is really, which is really grounded in a biblical truth is that we are made in God's image, all of us, that uh, we have equal dignity before God and before the law. And that, uh, you know, he even used the term uh, in his, his comment, which is almost forbidden today to say that we need a colorblind society. That is now seen as, oh, you, you can't say that. But he rightly is saying, look, we are image bearers. We are, we are those who are responsible for our actions, that we need to be those who are held accountable and work hard. And uh, you know, this decision then is, is eliminating, putting up, you know, divisions and saying, well, one group gets a, a, a certain betterment versus another, or one has a certain advantage versus another. We need to live true to the principles of our nation. And, and we would say as Christians, the principles of scripture, that we are created equal before God. We are responsible for our actions, that that we are to uh, not treat people in terms of difference of, of right, racial background, ethnic background, and so on. And so I think that came through uh, strong and clear. And, and really the principles that were the founding of the nation that weren't always consistently 
lived. And, and we did have to have, um, you know, a civil war. We did have to have the overturning of slavery. We did have to have uh, the civil rights movement in, in its positive sense, right? I mean, the Jim Crow laws and so on were wrong. And so we had to have the return to what was there really at the founding and really going back to a, a scriptural foundation. And I think the decision uh, this this uh, week by the Supreme Court is a very good one, even though we're hearing many people that are, are screaming about it and are going to object to it and, and, and so on. But we as Christians need to stand on those biblical truths that then were part of our nation, which is sadly has been lost and we can be thankful that the court has upheld them this week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I would, I would, I would only add to that. I've, you know, I've written about this, um, the issue related to affirmative action at, at great length over the course of many years. Uh, I've, I've been opposed to affirmative action in the way that it's executed across, in, in, across every, every framework, whether it's, uh, in, in employment, uh, in the workspace and workplaces, uh, where, where companies are, are extended government contracts, whether it's in, in, in education, which is the area that that was struck down by the uh, Supreme Court. I think we need to revisit that issue as it relates to you know, private industry as well. And so I've been opposed to it because of, like I said, my upbringing. I never saw an ethnic group on the basis of the level of melanin in their skin as inferior. Um, and, 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 and to the point that, that Steve made, perhaps there was a time when we wanted to advantage disadvantaged groups, disenfranchised groups, when, when you can actually point to a time in our country where there was systemic racism in the form of Jim Crow laws, right? We can acknowledge that, understand that and say, hey, there, there needs to be, be some kind of measurement. I, I don't think that the, that, that, that the balance needs to be swung to the point where um, we, in, in an effort to combat what was historically st- systemically racist, we initiate systemically racist policy. Policies, uh, to, to advance that forward. Uh, I think that's a short-sighted view. What we should have invested in was education or any kind of other component that helped advance uh, people so that they can all achieve at a, at a higher level rather than lowering lowering uh, test scores or evaluating some indicator on the basis of level of levels of melanin in the skin as, 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 as some brownie point for getting into college entrance or, or experiencing uh, uh, preferential treatment in, in the way of a, of a job. But uh, I've been against that primarily because because I, I see myself as someone who's not, I'm, I, I, I'm going to try to achieve at the, at the level that, that I need to. My thought process was don't, don't advantage me. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to hate the day you did. Cause I'm, I'm going to take you out. Right. My, my dad, my dad taught me to work twice as hard and, and twice as long and uh, get up early, be willing to stay up late. And, and, and when the other person shuts their eyes, you have yours, your eyes open and you go get what needs to be done, done. Uh, that's what my father taught me. And my hope would be that that all young men, uh, regardless of their ethnicity, would be taught the same kind of value about work, um, and and you know wouldn't rely on any kind of government handout or, or program. All those kinds of things do is they make others beholden to the party that that promoted that advantage to begin with. And so I think we need to think about those things in light of that and be ready to uh, ready to shake that kind of thing off and go work for it. Yeah, I think it's. Uh you know, if someone hasn't read those, well, I would certainly encourage them to go and read what you've written there. There's certainly good pieces on that, including the things that Clarence Thomas has just written in his opinion uh, for the court case this week. You know, but I think if you want to pull the sheet off of this, there was a tweet this week that uh, has probably been ratioed by now from Erica Marsh, or I'm sure you saw this. Today's Supreme Court decision is a direct attack on black people. No black person will be able to succeed in a merit-based system, which is exactly why affirmative action-based programs were needed. Today's decision is a travesty. And it's like, that's the argument there. I mean, that is incredibly racist, but it's for this virtue signaling of some other kind of preferential treatment that is there that is actually denigrating the very people, the very, you know, melanin color. <laughs> it's like, it does the exact opposite of that. That's that's an important point, right? Because from a Christian view, I mean, in some sense, you say, okay, we we want to help people, but but the very attitude that we have that we're going to help them already puts us in a kind of superior position and and treats the other. We're going to help you as if somehow you're inferior. I mean, this is a denial of who we are, and it and it's actually treating others um, as not full image bearers and people of significance and value and dignity. And it's uh, it's really demeaning of them. And and when someone says, you know, now the black community will not survive in, in a merit-based society, so on. I mean, what is his view of the black community? He should be ashamed of 
himself for viewing people in this way. And, and it's only the Christian view that actually can view us with equal dignity and value. And, and we dehumanize people when we don't treat them as having dignity and value and that they can do hard work and we expect hard work from them. And this, this seems to be the problem. And we'll go on this with, with Virgil's piece here is that the, the good of the civil rights also turned into some consequences that uh, then ultimately led to, you know, problems, right? And uh, so, so good intentions, you know, as, as they always say, uh, you know, the road to, to hell in some sense is paved with good intentions, but there's consequences that result if you are not starting from a proper biblical foundation. And that, that's the problem that we're seeing with that kind of quote is that uh, they really are treating people uh, not as people of dignity, equal dignity, equal value, and equal significance. Yeah, I, I, would, I, would, I would only add to that this. I, I know some, some have, have, have responded by, about that particular tweet as, you know, hey, it's, it's a parody account. That's not, they're not being serious about that, what have you. But at the end of the day, I think that, that, that the person expressed, whether it was parody or not, the person expressed an idea that's commonly held and, and articulated to one degree or another uh, by those who promote affirmative action types of programs. The idea is, you know, blacks just can't keep up. You know, they, they may or may not say it that way, uh, but the idea is blacks can't keep up. They can't, they can't read at a certain grade level. They can't do this at a certain level. And as a result, we need programs that incentivize them for those kinds of opportunities. In most instances, we're doing so by walking back certain qualifications or looking back at, uh, at, at, at certain aspects that, that help them to, to obtain the, the role, the job, the position, and, and are saying we're going to advantage them because of le the level of melanin in their skin. And so uh, I, wh whether it's parody or not, it's a, it's a commonly held view, uh, and that is the view being promoted. It's even promoted, interestingly enough, by by other blacks, right? Other blacks are saying that those kinds of things are needed, and, and, and even even successful blacks, right? Those who have broken through maybe glass barriers, those who have broken through and, and, and maybe become the first in their in their arena and having done so on the basis of having to work harder or, or, or read more or be up on their game a little bit better, uh, they see themselves as the exception rather than telling others, you know, if you work hard like I did, the, the doors of opportunity are open for you just as well. Their thought process is, well, I got here, I'm different, I'm unique. What needs to happen for the rest of everyone else is uh, some advantage program that diminishes the merit of, of their uh, accomplishments. Yeah. Well, brother, you, we've kind of taken some personal experience. We've talked about the situational things that are going on today. We've touched on some biblical realities. Let's get to your piece and talk about just some of the historical things that have led to where we are today. That's one of the things you're going back and looking at was just kind of a, an honest appraisal of the civil rights movement. So maybe to put it pro and con, like what was positive about the civil rights movement? Uh, and then begin to help us to see what some of the concerns are that you're raising in your piece. Yeah, the, the, the piece was kind of a, a thought process here more recently about civil rights. How do we, how should we think about this? What category should we put this in? And, and, and like you said, I think there's some, I think there's some validity in looking at it and saying there's some positive things that took place uh, as it relates to civil rights and primarily the, the, the Montgomery bus boycott as crafted as it was, I mean, because it, it didn't, you know, it didn't happen uh, by accident. Uh, it wasn't something that, oh, you know, uh, we, we had we had this, this situation where Rosa Parks just got up one day and was upset. And so here's what happened. Uh, there, there was there was a lot more thought behind that. There was a lot, there were a lot there was a lot more planning behind that. But at the end of the day, uh, I, I thought that the, the the Montgomery bus boycott was something that was really reflective of of what was good about the civil rights movement. They made a decision. Blacks who uh, were on the bus that that they were tired of being treated uh, like second class citizens, uh, having to sit on the back of the bus, and and even Rosa, she was at, she was in the front row of the black section, but was told to get up and go to the back. Uh, even that is depicted differently in, in media. If you go now and, and even Google Rosa Parks, you'll see her sitting on the front row of the bus, and that wasn't where she was. She was actually on the front of the section in the back where the blacks were to sit. Uh, it was that, that the, 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 the white section was full, the black section first row she was sitting on and was told to get up and get back to give up her seat. Uh, that's actually what happened, historically speaking, and she just was unwilling to do so. Uh, so as a result, she was she was arrested and uh, and, and they let, they used her story and her background uh, as a catalyst for starting uh, a boycott on the buses in an effort to desegregate uh, buses. 
Um, so you, you, the, the storyline is, is, is powerful because what I think initially civil rights leaders thought was going to be a three day, four day at best kind of, uh, a, a boycott and, and the buses, the bus system and the city would capitulate. Uh, it, it did not. And so, uh, people had to, had to do a lot more. They had to be resourceful. They had to figure out how they were going to make things work. All of these kind of self-determining kinds of ideas that we talk about. There were people in the community from, from church leaders to your next door neighbor, if they had a car, they were helping each other get to where they needed to be uh, in order to make ends meet. So you were watching this happen. And, and then rather than giving the bus system and the city the money, they were exchanging this money between one another. So you had a, you had a, a, a black economic component that was advantaged in that way. Uh, you had self-sufficiency, self-determination. All of that was happening as a result. Uh, the, the, the bus system began to crumble uh, because uh, next to 70 percent of the patrons on the bus were black. And so, you know, you see these buses that were uh, that were virtually empty and the city was losing money like crazy. There were city officials who wanted to, to who just wanted to capitulate and they wouldn't. So the uh, the whole situation got to where the the process would go all the way to the Supreme Court. And, and in that decision, uh, of course, uh, those who were advocating for desegregation prevailed. Those were some good things. And the reason why that was a good thing was because the Constitution was then tested by the Supreme Court. And what it did was it held. It, what, what we saw was that the Constitution, as it's written, would, would stand firm in, in, as it pertains to protecting its ethnic minorities. Uh, they're fighting for equal rights. And so that was great. I think thereafter, this opportunity would catapult Martin Luther King into the forefront and he would get audience now with political leaders. Whenever you walk into the role of politics, they're looking out for themselves. Needless to say, I think King himself as well, over the course of time, got caught up in that and it would lead to what I believe to be a, a detrimental situation, a problematic situation as it relates to the advance of civil rights. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting when you just think about the particularities of the Montgomery bus boycott, right? Someone like Rosa Parks often presented as just an innocent seamstress, and certainly that's what she was, but she was also trained, you know, to be an activist at the very same time, right? And Christopher Caldwell in his book, Age of the Enlightenment, brings that out. And it's like, just those particular nuances there, it's like, okay, there was some strategy that was going on there. As you said, there's goodness in that. It tested it to the Constitution, uh, but then there are other things that it's good to know about as well. And certainly you've written about MLK uh, and some of the things that are there. Would you say that there was a change in the way that he conducted himself? Certainly his theology, there's been a question there. I'm thinking about where he was in Montgomery to even in you know the years before he was assassinated, when he was killed. I mean, some of the things he was calling for were more socialist than they were just, you know, thinking about, you know, equal rights protections. Just kind of walk us through MLK and how to think about that. Yeah, it's interesting. If, it, it, of all the figures in, uh, in, in civil rights and in, in history, as it relates to you know black history in particular, uh, MLK is just a is just a figure who uh, folks don't want to address or deal with or talk about. And um, it's not difficult to go find out about him and 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 what he thought and what he believed and uh, and the like. I wrote a piece about it as uh, that that talks about that with with great clarity. It's called the truth. The piece is uh, you can find it at g3men.com. Org. Uh, it's called The Truth About Martin Luther King. Uh, and in that piece, I, I wanted to examine, just take a close, uh, a real clear look uh, about his history, his background, his theology, and what motivated him. And one of the things that I think is important for people to know was, was his idea about uh, about his mission. Uh, he, he was he would be writing to his his wife uh, and talking about his mission uh, and his plan to to promote uh, his gospel. Uh, and and he said he 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 would write this. He said this quote: "Let us continue to hope, work, and pray that in the future we will live to see a warless world, a better distribution of wealth, and a brotherhood that transcends race and color." He said this, and I'm continuing to quote from him as he writes a letter during his days in college to his bride-to-be, Coretta Scott King, he writes this, that this is the gospel that I will preach to the world. So if you're thinking about him as a pastor or preacher or leader who's, who's declaring the gospel, the gospel as we know it, is the good news of Jesus Christ, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, that those of us who would repent, have faith in him, would experience eternal life and would be uh, connected uh, to him and, and his bride, the church, and we'd be ultimately be united with him. That is indeed the gospel for King, his gospel was a better world, a warless 
world, one that, that would see the redistribution of wealth and a brotherhood that transcends race and color. So his gospel was devoid of any of the things that we talk about as it relates to Christ and him crucified. Uh, in fact, when you examine his theology and his theological thought processes, and you could find this in his writing, this is not thing, these are not things that I'm making up about him. Uh, he denied the deity of Christ. Uh, he denied the virgin birth. He denied the resurrection. So I would argue that just based upon these denials, particularly his denial of Christ and his deity and the resurrection, King was not orthodox by any stretch of the imagination. And so uh, King was not a, a, a Christian in the way that we understand it. And I think he, he was a fantastic orator. Uh, he, you might argue that, that he was a, you know, had a social gospel uh, that he promoted, but from a standpoint of promoting the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ and leveraging that for the purpose of, of, of seeing heart transformation uh, and then life transformation uh, coming out of that, that was not King's uh, position. Virgil, do you think it would be fair to say with Martin Luther King when we contrast him with, say, present leaders of the civil rights and 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 civil you know movement type of thing that have tried to take on from him? I mean, he they they've some sense left him behind. So with Martin Luther King, I mean, I, I look at him with his liberal theology, which he obviously is uh, embracing a liberalism that takes a bit of what scripture teaches and uses Christian vocabulary and language and then mixes it with the present culture and thought of, of, of the day. But he still is living off of a borrowed capital of Christianity, especially on the civil rights issue where he's arguing for a colorblind society. He's arguing for um, you know, equal dignity of human beings and then appealing to uh, the United States Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and so on. Uh, yet, um, uh, because he's not building from a true Christian base, he's also letting in socialism and other ideas like that tied to a social gospel that eventually are going to sow the seeds of destruction of the very movement he's trying to to uh, to uphold and so today people won't go back to his speeches they'll they'll remember his speeches but they don't really believe what he's saying anymore because they've now gone way further now they're whatever you want to call them postmodern or or whatever they you know adopting critical theories critical race theories and so on which he probably you know wasn't there just yet but those who come thereafter are and so now we see sort of where you know if you don't hold to a consistent Christian position in the, in the, in the gospel, it eventually will lead to something else of, of a worse of sort. So he is a kind of on the spectrum of, of, of holding some Christian truths in place, yet uh, sowing the seeds of destruction of it, and it will never be able to stand. And those who there come after uh, will then have to, in some sense, take the movement in an entirely different direction. I mean, I just wonder if that's fair to, to think about with Martin Luther King. Steve, I think, I think you articulate that incredibly well. I think all of those things are accurate and true. It's imperative that when we talk about uh, religious leaders, and, and again, I'm, I'm much more critical of someone who, who, who says that they're naming the name of Christ or are a pastor or are a, you know, or are speaking on behalf of God. I, I, if that's, if that's the framework you're coming from, well, then I think we have a, we have a responsibility and obligation, uh, according to scripture to examine what they're saying against the backdrop of scripture. We know that King was informed and got a lot of his worldview uh, from from the, the man before him, uh, who was Walter Rauschenbusch. Rauschenbusch in the nineteen twenties uh, and thirties, tens, twenties and thirties, uh, uh, was had a, had his created really. He's the, known as the father of the social gospel up there in, in in New York in Hell's Kitchen, New York. His thought process was similar to King's. He was he uh, Rauschenbusch was seeing immigrants come in, uh, being treated poorly kind of on the lowest rung of the economic ladder. Uh, he desired to see them uh, do well. I think that's a good Christian thought process. That's a good Christian thing to do. Uh, the problem is when you exchange uh, uh, the idea of seeing someone's temporal well-being uh, uh, you know, done for, cared for, and you, your thought process is that that is indeed the gospel. That's when we have problems. When you believe that, that more importantly than speaking to the e eternal matters uh, of the heart, the issues of sin, the, the sinful condition of the human, you know, of, of the human heart uh, and how we adjudicate that before holy God. Uh, when you remove that element and your whole thought process is uh, economic advantage and wealth redistribution, you're preaching a different gospel. King was informed by that, so he would lead in that. You, you mentioned that our, uh, the contemporaries of our day. I think of uh, uh, his contemporary in, in pulpit, um, uh, Raphael Warnock. 
uh, who preaches at Ebenezer uh, Baptist Church here in, in my home state of, of Georgia, who's taken the same pulpit that, that, that King preached from, and he's, he's got the same social gospel. Uh, it's the same ideas. He's supporting same-sex marriage. He's supporting uh, abortion. Uh, he's, he's supporting all the ideas that, that, run, counter, that run in contradiction uh, to what Scripture has to say about these issues. Uh, you, you talk about a, another, another spiritual leader, uh, Jamal Bryant, uh, who has a national platform in the black community speaking to these issues. On the very day of the Dobbs decision, the Supreme Court uh, decision that overturned Roe v. Wade, uh, Raphael Warnock would step into his pulpit and, 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 and basically, and in fact, what's interesting is, is, is the name of his church is New Birth Missionary Baptist Church. So on the day of the Dobbs decision, he steps into the pulpit and declares that, uh, that, that this Dobbs decision represents a war on women in America, that women should have the right to choose, and that he eventually uh, would articulate that he's taken his whole church in a direction to promote the ending of human life in the womb because a woman should have the right to choose. The God that men like that worship is a very impotent God. That impotent God is unable to help a young girl who finds herself pregnant uh, or, or, or is in a situation where she's pregnant and, and needs to care for a baby. Uh, their God is incapable of providing for uh, that child. So the, the, the end result of the God that they worship is uh, it's important to kill that child in the womb. And so that is not the God of the Bible. That is not uh, uh, the, the, the biblical gospel that's being preached. And the, the point you made earlier is when you go one degree from uh, or two degrees from what scripture has to say on these issues, you find yourself very quickly with a Raphael Warnock or something along those lines of Jamal Bryant or, or worse. I find it interesting, Virgil and Steve, just reflecting on what you guys are saying here, that we often talk about the black church and the white church, right? And they're treated as two monolithic things and that, you know, one presentation of one speaks for all the rest. But what I'm actually thinking as well is that the black church and the white church, which are different at any one given time, are also different from decade to decade to decade, yes. right? I mean, so, you know, it seems as though there are many people today who look at MLK and maybe more of a caricature or a cartoon version of MLK and want to be just like him, right? And so then they are kind of redoing the civil rights movement in their own way uh, today. But of course, the civil rights movement has been wrongly appropriated by the LGBTQ movement and everything else like that. And even that you just said about Raphael Warnock. But to go back in time, I'm thinking about the man who was the founding pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church there in Birmingham where uh, MLK would come and be a pastor later on. And so uh, Charles Octavius Booth was one, if you read his little book called Plain Theology for Plain People, it's a glorious little book, right? It's even Calvinistic in its doctrine, and it's just really faithful to the scriptures. And so you look at that as like, here's a man who is faithful to the word of God, preaching the gospel that we would hold firm. He's he's actually speaking against the, his white neighbors who are not loving their neighbors and rebuking them appropriately from the word of God. But then you fast forward 60 years or 100 years, and something has changed. And so we're just going through Christian liberalism by J. Gresham Machen. And so we can see the liberal slide in the predominantly white church in the Northern Presbyterian uh, denomination at that time, PCUSA and the rest. And it's like, we need to think about not only just black, white church, but different times in different places. And that what is going on today, if there are issues of prejudice, if there are different areas of, of racism, they, it's not the same as it was in the 60s. It's not the same as it was in the 1870s. And that really seems to be an important place to, to talk about too. Yeah, I agree with you. In some, in some regards, I think you're right that that uh, the the dates and times change. Unfortunately, the, the the issues don't. So, for example, you mentioned the LGBTQ community and the like, and how they're appropriating some of the issues related to civil rights. It's all it's all the idea behind it is the same is the same. In that, the latter half of the civil rights movement really looked to government in, in an effort to validate their humanity. Uh, they looked to government from a standpoint of providing resources and the like, and the LGBTQ Q community is actually doing the same. Now, it's, it's different in that uh, we're talking about uh, about a, a, the difference between a mutable and an immutable characteristic, right? S something I've, I've chosen to do, regardless of how you frame it. Today, I feel like a woman when you're actually a biological male, right? Those are, those are choices that you're uh, obviously making. I can't choose to change the, the level of melanin in my skin, not something I cannot change. Uh, but at the end of the day, there, there's, still an, there's still an effort to have government step in at some point uh, and, and, and adjudicate the issue. That government needs to say that it's it's okay for a, a man to be dressed like a woman to uh, to go into a restroom that's that's not co coordinated with the biological sex the government needs to step in and, and advance the cause 
of, of men, biological men who want to engage in women's sports. So they're, they're all, all of them are still going back to government for a solution rather than looking to the word of God to, to say this is the standard by which we operate and function uh, and we're going to do so on, on, on that basis. So yes, situations change based upon time frame. The sin may look differently now today than it did 50 years ago, 80 years ago, uh, but it's still the same sinful heart that causes that desire. Secondly, I think you're right from a standpoint of black church, white church. Th those are categories that I think are quick uh, for people to kind of hang their hat on and they know exactly kind of what's talked about. And I think you're right. I think there are some, there, there are some faithful black pastors who are preaching to predominantly black churches. Unfortunately, those aren't names we know. Right. They don't have big platforms. The, the names that we know that get national recognition, that get time on television, that get uh, opportunities to, to speak uh, to key issues across the country are from these these, you know, backwards spaces and places that have absolutely abandoned scripture, uh, have attached themselves either to the Democratic Party or some liberal progressive ideology uh, and, have, and have advanced their cause from from that platform rather than from scripture. Yeah, Virgil, what struck me in, in looking at some of the history of the civil rights and then seeing this very interesting connection of how, you know, you needed government to overturn Jim Crow laws and and change uh, Supreme Court decisions and so on. But then the dependence that uh, took place on the government and then the irony of in the South where the Democrat Party pretty much was very racist and or, or you know orientation and so on yet there is then the linking of uh, the black community with the democrat party going back to fdr tied to the new deal and then particularly with um, you know john f kennedy and, and 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 so on who came thereafter i mean this seems to be an important observation that you're making and that instead of you know the black community you know having entrepreneurship and depending on themselves and so on yes we need government but became an over dependence upon uh which then brought about in some sense uh, further problems and 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 you know seeds of destruction type of thing i wonder if you want to address that in terms of you know the role of dependence upon the government yeah, I, I think I think there is a role for government, right? Uh, from a standpoint of protecting rights available. So, for example, voting rights, right? I think I think you you have to have government step in and protect my right and freedom to vote. Uh, you know, I, I think I think you need to you need to look at those opportunities where we're expressing freedom and those freedoms are being disadvantaged or disenfranchised, and those freedoms need to be enacted. There needs to be something in place to help create a, an environment where I'm able to operate as a as a fully fledged citizen of the United States. I, th I think that's a, that's a great place for government. I think where, where it becomes problematic and then creates dependency are when programs are instituted for the purpose of, of, of trying to rectify some historic form of, uh, you know, of, of, of racism or, the, or, or racial divide, especially when it's not directly attached to the generation to which it happened, right? We can talk about the reparations debate, uh, you know, and how reparations should be paid now and, uh, you know, how it wasn't then and, and all of that. And it, you, you can go into a conversation related to that. But, but at, at the end of the day, that's one of the reasons why in the piece, I really pointed out that the Montgomery bus boycott was really brilliant in its, in its, in its construction and its demonstration and how it, how it affected the culture because economics played the primary role in seeing the, the, the change of heart happen on the local level. Uh, and, and there was, there was self-dependency. There was self-sufficiency within, within the community. And when you do that, you, you're able to operate with whoever you're interacting with from a standpoint of strength rather than weakness. Uh, you're operating from a standpoint of, I, I can do this for myself. Uh, there's great advantage to us knocking down this barrier and working in a way that, that, that that's mutually beneficial. Uh, but when you create incentives, uh, whether it's whether it's civil rights legislation or the like, where I'm required to hire this many blacks, or I'm required to contract with this many organizations as a result of the level of melanin in, in their skin, you create dependency from the people that are receiving the contracts and, and really anger and outrage uh, by those who are who are being forced to enforce uh, these these kinds of things. And so those are the kinds of things to take a look at. I mean, there could even be a conversation about uh, as it relates to the issues of education with the Brown and Board, Board of Education uh, deal. That was a constitutional deal. Yes, schools should have been desegregated. That's, that's great. Equal education. I, I get all of that. But one of the things that's not talked about as it relates to that are what happened to all of those black teachers who were teaching in black communities 
communities as a result of the desegregation, where do they now go, right? You've got these students who are now entering white school systems and, 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 and it's assumed based upon the whiteness of their skin that they are receiving a better education in those spaces and places. Uh, but you also have these, these teachers who were able to teach in black communities who now have no home, no place to go, uh, and, and they're now left behind. And now when you look, uh, finding black educators and, and putting them in public school systems is, is actually a challenge uh, that's faced around the country. I mean, so they're, they're, to the point that we made, I think at the beginning of our conversation, there are pros and cons to all of this. And I think what we've done is we've looked at the civil rights movement and said there are only, there's only great things that took place. Uh, there's only wonderful things that, that were the result and all of it should be a model for what we do moving forward. And, and, and the point of my piece and the argument that I'm making is let's pump the brakes, let's look at it and, and walk through what took place, the good and the bad, uh, and see how we can do this thing better as we move forward. Yeah, that's well said. I think uh, I'm looking at our time, so I want to be sensitive to that. But I, I want to kind of talk about one thing. We've talked about education, we've talked about politics, we've talked about government, but it'd be good to talk about the family just a little bit. Because one of the things that I think is is forgotten is that in the 1960s, there were programs, you say, they were put in place by Lyndon Baines Johnson, the War on Poverty, the Great Society, all these things that established a welfare system, that established different programs that changed the nature of the black family. It's a change the nature of the white family later on as well. Would you be willing to talk just a little bit more about that and how the, the family was impacted by the civil rights movement in the 1960s coming forward? Yeah, uh, what what came out of that out of Moynihan's report was the idea that blacks had been damaged not simply by slavery and by Jim Crow, but also even current conditions. Uh, the current setup of of you know the way things were at the time, late sixties, uh, was still problematic and disadvantaged blacks. You had you had single mothers and motherhood that was happening, and and men who were not working and the like. And this was happening across the board, but but directly impacting uh, black communities in in a greater way. Again because of uh, issues of education, poor education, uh, issues related to uh, ability to read. I mentioned my father in that situation as well. Um, but what those programs did was that they incentivized the breakdown of the family in that uh, women, black women in particular, were able to receive financial benefit for themselves and for the child that was in the home so long as there was no man in the home particularly the father of the child. And, and so, and, and what happened in communities were the, the government, in order to uh, properly get this program into place, put into place many people who would go and just kind of show up in, in homes that were receiving these funds to, to check. Uh, so if there was a man in the house that th those checks were not, uh, were not able to be received, out of that, women had made a decision that it was better for them to marry the government rather than marrying a man. Uh, it was better financially for them to have one, two, three, four children and receive a government check and stay home uh, than it was to live an independent, uh, self-sufficient lifestyle of, I'm going to find the man of my youth. I'm going to marry that man. I'm going to have a child within the confines of a marriage, and we're going to advance our plight for generations to come. And so you, you had that going around within Black communities all the way up until uh, up until the uh, late 90s when Clinton would come along and, and make the distinction that uh, that there needed to be a change and then even talking about that during that time frame was seen as as uh, as as directly racist so you couldn't even talk about the conditions that these black women were finding themselves in or, or, or were in I, I say finding themselves I want to be careful about that language because it's like they it's like they happenstance upon it no they knew what they were doing when when they laid down to have sex with a man and had had a child out of wedlock so they, they were clear about what what they were doing but the consequence of that, you could not talk about or speak about their condition without being seen as racist. And so, again, this whole idea around uh, being oppressed, even though that language wasn't used, of being a victim, uh, that language was used, uh, had, had, had had a 30-year lifespan on the black community. And so what you witness out of that are, are even today, uh, blacks uh, in particular have some of the highest rates of a single motherhood. Some, some uh, studies say 68, some say 70% of, of children are born to single mothers. And that's the, that, that is the key to poverty within the black community. Add to that, marriage rates in the black community are the, are the lowest than any other ethnic group. Black women by far marry, if they marry at all, marry at a, at a, at a later and later time uh, in life, uh, if at all. And so those are the kinds of things that came out of it. It absolutely destroyed black families as a result. And it's interesting, Virgil, we're seeing what happened to the black family now is just now happening right across the board, isn't it? The whole it destruction is. of the it family is. in our society, the rise of government to take the place of the family to take the place of the fathers, the man in the home. 
And um, it'd be interesting, and maybe another conversation at some other time is just w- what was the black church saying at this time when you had um, no fathers there, or n- people not getting married, or you know having children uh, out of wedlock type of thing, contrary to scripture? Was there actually uh, calling people to account? Obviously, there there probably wasn't, and we're seeing that same kind of thing in churches today, where you know, the LGBT agenda. Let's be sensitive to that when this is a clear violation of scripture. So you know, you go back to: Are we going to be faithful to God's word? Are we going to hold people accountable? Are we going to build family units that are according to scripture? That is the way that uh, you know any community has success. But uh, when we don't do that, we're going to see destruction and failure. And often what comes in is the government comes in to say, we'll take care of you. And of course, that's the worst thing that can happen often. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when, when you when you look at current current church culture and there's more of an embrace uh, as it relates to Black Lives Matter causes, as if the thing that's 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 most terrifying in black communities is the idea that some white police officer is going to shoot a, a black man, that that's the primary when statistics show that most black men are, are shot by another black male. When you look at the what we talked about earlier as it relates to the issues of, of abortion, uh, that pro-abortion stances are actually taken on a Sunday morning in a church that political leaders are invited in to advance those ideas. Uh, you, you know that, that the church has, has gone far afield. And, and again, I would, I would point directly back to King and the time frame that we're talking about uh, as, as he, as he through his leadership would divorce us from, from the orthodoxy of scripture, from a biblical worldview, even though he used it at times to his advantage, but would marry us not to God, but to government as a solution for the issues within the community. Yeah, our time is coming to a close. I want to say one thing and then let you guys finish up here as well. One of the things that's striking to me is that it would seem that some Christians might push back on this conversation. Even this entire month, we're thinking about civil rights, say we're getting off message, right? We need to be talking about the gospel. We need to be talking about salvation and talking about all these things. We certainly do. But I think one of the things that, you know, we've gone back to time and again to Francis Schaeffer. And one of the last questions, he was like, what's, you know, the greatest trouble in the world, the greatest problem in the world? And he said, statism. Right. And it seems as though one of the things that pastors need to be aware of and churches need to be addressing is the way that government is leading people astray and inviting them to not trust in the Lord, not to trust in the family structures, to not go in the ways that his word instructs, but to, as you say, marry yourself to the state or to look for those programs as a savior or to look for ways in which the government is trying to encroach itself upon individuals who happen to be in our churches as well. And so just, you know, these do have great implications for Christians, for churches, for pastors. But I'd ask just to kind of conclude, Virgil, what would you say to the pastor? Say, what needs to be preached? What needs to be taught in thinking about these things? How would you want to encourage a pastor to be engaging these things today? I think we raised the issue from the beginning, which is, in fact, I think Steve was, was the one who kind of really put his finger on the pulse of it. It's the idea that if we step away from what Scripture has to say about these things, we're, we're, really, we're really walking on a, on a path uh, that leads to destruction. I think the nature of the, the series that you all are working on is, is, is timely. You know, August will be the 60th year of the March on Washington from Martin Luther King. Um, and so, you know, it, this could not be a better time for this series uh, to come out. Uh, it, it'll, it'll be thought provoking as and an eye opening, especially for believers uh, as they'll witness this 60th anniversary of, of King's speech there on the Washington Monument. So it's, it's timely, it's purposed. Uh, it, it's going to help us focus on the very question that you're, that you're challenging me with, which is let's make sure that we push all that we're talking about through the lens of scripture and that we see the solution as the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and Him crucified. That there's no more important message uh, that can be delivered. Uh, that, that heart transformation begins from that standpoint. Uh, and then we begin to see culture impacted in a positive way as a result. Yeah, what strikes me is, is in the whole conversation here is, is this takes us right back to the gospel, right? I mean, in, in that unless we build our lives on the truth of God's word, and we consistently work that out. Uh, we're not going to have a, a, a you know a proper building of the family. We're not going to have a proper building of the church, and even its impact on the larger society and government. And in some sense, the whole discussion we're talking about the civil rights movement for all the good that it's done. There's also because it wasn't built 
on a proper biblical foundation, the good that it did could not last, right? And it would sow seeds of destruction that eventually will go in directions that you don't want it to go into. So now when we have the LGBT agenda tied to the civil rights, I mean, now we're talking apples and oranges in terms of different race issues uh, versus now sexual uh, orientation and sin and everything else. It's gone the wrong direction. So it's a reminder that we have to have our churches go back to God's word, build our lives there and call people to account in terms of, you know, their responsibility before God to know him, to know Christ, to live that out then consistently. And this is a good reminder of this. Brothers, thank you both for just your your feedback, your comments, your your wisdom, your insight today. It's a joy to have uh, this conversation with you, Virgil. Thank you for being on our podcast today. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. We'll be talking more with Virgil this month, and uh, Steve, we'll be talking with him as well as we think about uh, issues of justice and everything else. So, Steve, thanks for joining us today, brother. Great to be with you on such an important conversation. And friends, thank you for listening to Christ Overall today. If this discussion about the civil rights movement has prompted further interest, take time to listen to or read Virgil's long form, Where is the Good News? An honest look at the civil rights movement and the black community. In fact, stick around all month because we will continue to provide essays and podcasts that engage the subject. Indeed, as the subjects of civil rights continue to be thrown around today, we believe that Christians need wise, biblical counsel on how to think about these issues. And we pray that the resource found here at Christ Overall will truly help you to think more carefully, indeed, more biblically about these matters. At the same time, we would ask you to pray for this ministry, and even more for your own local church and its ministries of the gospel. As we've seen over the last few years, indeed, over the last century, There are many ways that churches can veer from the truth, and we should be a people who are committed to preaching and praying for the truth to prevail. To that end, if the Lord leads you to give to this ministry so that we can continue to publish evergreen content that engages the Bible, theology, church, and culture, please go to ChristOverall.com and give today. We would love for you to partner with us in this good work. Until next time then, let us therefore remember that Christ is Lord over all, and so in all things, let us exalt Christ. Christ.